Well, welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone from Origins at Ohio State. I'm your host, Leticia Wiggins. And I'm your other host, Patrick Patyandi. President Obama thrust Cuba-U.S. relations into the national spotlight with a historic announcement in mid-December. U.S. to restore full relations with Cuba, erasing a last trace of Cold War hostility, read the New York Times headline. And though this is quite a powerful claim, there's no denying U.S.-Cuban relations could be in for a real change. Always in the news these days, Pope Francis apparently played a role in connecting President Obama with Raul Castro in Cuba. The relatively small nation of 11 million people is only 100 miles away from Florida and yet has played a disproportionately monumental role in U.S. foreign policy and domestic politics before, during, and after the Cold War. Cuba, once a colony of Spain, came under the control of the U.S. at the turn of the 19th century. The nation holds a powerful place in American culture and politics. It's where Christopher Columbus first encountered the New World where Teddy Roosevelt led his infamous Rough Riders, where Ernest Hemingway spent time to write and fish, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union perhaps came closest to nuclear warfare, and where a more than 50-year-old embargo has stymied the Cuban economy. President Obama has also highlighted the issue in his State of the Union address this week, and as a delegation of U.S. Congressional Democrats visits Cuba and other U.S. political and economic interests weigh in from the right and left, we examine the history of U.S.-Cuban relations to better understand our present. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Professor Lilia Fernandez from the Department of History here at The Ohio State University. I teach U.S. Latina Latino history and have written on Latino community formation, Mexicans and Puerto Ricans in uh, post-war Chicago, and a number of other topics. Um, hi, Mr. Chiliki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Miami, and I'm also the director of the Institute for Cuban and Cuban-American Studies. I've written a little bit on Cuba. Uh, my most important work is a history of Cuba called Cuba from Columbus to Castro. It is now in its fifth edition. I am Hideaki Kami, PhD candidate at Ohio State University's History Department. I have been studying history of U.S. relations with Cuba, especially during the late Cold War years. I have a couple of articles on this topic. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us today. Um, we have a couple in studio at, from Ohio State in Columbus and Professor Sujliki phoning in today from Miami. So we're going to go ahead and get to the questions. A little bit of an introduction, groundwork question. We're wondering what the extent of American involvement in Cuba between 1898 and 1959 was. And, and if you'd like to get us rolling first, Dr. Fernandez. Sure. I think it's very important to think about the longer uh, historical context of uh, U.S.-Cuban relations uh, before 1959, uh, going back to the 19th century, in fact. And if we look at uh, what a number of uh, American presidents uh, said over the 19th century, there was a great interest in Cuba on the part of the United States in terms of developing economic relations with the island, in terms of perhaps colonizing or taking control of the island politically. But it wasn't until the Spanish-American War that we were directly involved politically and militarily. Uh, with the island. Prior to that, uh, by the 1890s, United States investors had, I think, approximately about $50 million worth of investments on the island, in uh, primarily in sugar plantations. And about 94% of Cuba's sugar exports were going directly to the United States. After the Spanish-American War, in which Cuba gained its independence from Spain, in the U.S. we passed the Platt Amendment, which 
uh, specified that we would not be occupying or taking control of the island. However, we would be able to intervene on behalf of it to maintain um, the peace, to maintain uh, economic conditions that would be favorable to us um, and a number of other provisions. Uh, that meant that w the United States had a tremendous amount of economic power and control in Cuban uh, affairs up until, uh, at least officially, up until 1934 when uh, President Roosevelt finally did away with those provisions in the Platt Amendment. But still, we maintained uh, control of Guantanamo Bay, which also came under U.S. authority after the Spanish-American War. Yeah, I think uh, over time, I, I, I should also add that almost all aspects of Cuban life became more dependent on uh, U.S. politics or U.S. economy and also U.S. cultural power. Like, you know, baseball is still popular in Cuba. In terms of Cuban economy, it's, uh, U.S. investment still kept growing. Uh, I think by uh, on the eve of the revolution, the United States took half of Cuba's sugar exports and about two-thirds of all island exports a U.S. direct investment in Cuba reached about $1 billion. A U.S. companies owned about 40% of the Cuban sugar lands and 80% of the utilities and almost all cattle ranches, railways, and petroleum industries. And I think Cuban relations with the United States certainly helped the island develop economically, uh, but social discontent in Cuba also grew rapidly due to the increasing gap between the poor and the rich. Uh, and you know, elites and masses of whites and non-whites and people living in the countryside and people living in urban uh, places. So people of color, for example, uh, which was more than one quarter of Cubans uh, population, suffered from racial prejudices. And at the time of economic recessions, it was a middle class complaint of their lives. And because of this, you know, strong U.S. presence in the Cuban economy or Cuban culture or politics, uh, their frustration sometimes went to the United States. And, you know, I think uh, very interestingly, Cuban people uh, usually compare their living standard with not those of uh, other Latin American countries, but those of the United States, because the United States was a very cross country, and they often uh, went back and forth between the Florida Straits. And unfortunately, I mean, the average income in Cuba was a little over one-third that of Mississippi, the poorest state in the United States. So uh, even when Cuba economy was uh, doing better than other Latin American countries, people still complain a lot. I mean, if you wanted to right, add sir, anything... U.S. interests in Cuba grew at the end of the 19th century for three reasons. First, the beginning of the building of the Panama Canal, Cuba was strategically interesting for the United States and important for the United States. So there was a strategic consideration in the interests of the United States in Cuba. The second consideration was economic. Uh, this was a commercial interest. Unlike the expansionism of the United States in the middle of the century, when we went to war with Mexico and captured half of Mexico, there was no interest in the late 19th century in territorial expansion. We were interested in commercial relations. Uh, U.S. banks invested in the Caribbean. And as those loans went bad and countries don't pay, we became more and more involved. And the third issue is a humanitarian sort of pro the progressive movement in the United States, which saw the countries in the Caribbean as lesser than the U.S. 
and a lot of leaders and, and intellectuals in the United States felt an obligation to try to help the countries in the Caribbean improve and, and, and enjoy a better life. The peak of American investments in Cuba occurred before World War II. By the time World War II ended, American investments in Cuba began to decline, and they declined on up to 1959. Uh, sure, Cuba continued to sell sugar to the United States. Cuba and the U.S. were close trading partners. But the U.S. influence somewhat diminished after World War II, in part because Cuba had a revolution in 1933, because after the war, the United States became a world power and became involved with other countries. So there is a lesser of a U.S influence or involvement. Yet, Cuba remains very close to the United States throughout this period. Uh, that's a really good transition, I think, to our, our next question here. Um, how did the relationship between the young Fidel Castro here in 1959 and the U.S. sour so quickly? Um, what are the important points to remember here? Um, and Hideaki, if you wanted to begin here, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think there are a couple of important points here. Uh, I think, first of all, we need to think about what the Cuban Revolution was. Uh, it was not only popular, but also very radical. Uh, what the revolution aimed to do was a complete, uh, complete break with the past, including Cuban relations with the United States. And because of intimacy of U.S.-Cuban relations, as we mentioned earlier, uh, whatever Fidel, Fidel Castro did in Cuba, it inevitably affected uh, the interests of the United States. And but. You know, uh, the revolution required radical re-evaluation of Cuban relations with the United States, but I don't think the U.S. official, uh, I mean, U.S. officials were not ready for that. Uh, also, we also need to know who Fidel Castro was. Uh, Fidel always had a strong feeling that he was doing the right thing. And to the surprise of U.S. officials, uh, he did not hesitate to criticize the United States and its policy, uh, not only in Cuba, but also in other places. You know, for example, at the very beginning of the revolution, he made numerous critical remarks on the U.S. decision to drop atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that is, you know, something you would expect from a friendly leader of a friendly country of the United States, um, at least at that point. Um, so uh, eventually, I think the Cuban leader was seen as an anti-American. And this was the judgment that uh, I think Dwight Eisenhower made uh, before he approved uh, CIA covert operation of attacking Cuba and or assassinating uh, Fidel Castro. We have to understand who Fidel Castro was. At Belen Jesuit School, where he went to high school, there was a strong phalangista, which is the branch of Spanish fascism. And he was influenced by that ideology at Berlin. So that ideology talked against American and British imperialism, talked about a Latin America united against the United States, talked about a number of things that Fidel became imbued with it. After he left high school and entered the University of Havana, he became involved with a number of radical groups. And from the University of Havana, as a student, he went to Bogota, Colombia in 1948 to demonstrate against the inter-American meeting that was taking place there. His trip was paid by Perón, the Argentine dictator, and a number of Latin American students went to Bogota to oppose the United States and to oppose the anti-American meeting. 
there was an assassination of a leader in Bogotá that had nothing to do with Fidel Castro. He took pick a rifle, went into the street, and began to distribute anti-U.S. propaganda. So as a very young man, 19 years old, he was already against the United States, and this is normal in many Latin American countries, students, and, and, and there are elements in the intellectual area that are anti-American. Ten years forward, when he was in the mountains fighting the dictatorship of Batista, he wrote to one of his allies, my real struggle will begin when I come to power, and that struggle is going to be against the United States. So we were faced in 1959 with a leader that wanted to change Cuban society, that wanted to transform Cuban society, that was interested in remaining in power for a long time, not to have elections and to be a nice leader in the Caribbean, and that was anti-American. If I could add uh, something to that, uh, that makes a lot of sense, uh, you know, thinking about the... um, strong critiques of the United States in the region, uh, given the tremendous amount of uh, influence and economic and political power that uh, the U.S. exercised uh, throughout Latin America during this time. So it's not surprising to see that someone like Castro would have been, uh, you know, would have had these ideas early on, and that, um, you know, the United States would have seen him as uh, potentially threatening, you know, from the very beginning. Um, I think once once Cuba um, allied itself with the Soviet Union, of course, that became uh, that took on paramount significance for us because, of course, in the context of the Cold War, the Soviet Union was um, uh, our greatest enemy. Castro emerges out of his years in the mountain as a guerrilla in an alliance with the Cuban Communist Party as well as other groups that opposed Batista. So he was very close to the Communist Party. His brother, Raul, was a member of the youth branch of the Communist Party, had been to Eastern Europe behind what they call the Iron Curtain. So there was a very close relationship, although Fidel Castro, given his nature and his uh, actions, was not to be considered a Marxist. Uh, He didn't have a clear ideology. His clear ideology was anti-Americanism. His desire was to remain in power, and it is in that context that he brings the Soviet Union to support him. I think to explain about uh, Fidel's reaction to the United States, uh, one thing we have to also know about is uh, counter-revolutionary attacks on Cuba, I mean, Cuban people from South Florida and other South, I mean, Caribbean countries, uh, right after the revolution took place. Uh, there were so many people uh, who started to leave the country and started to attack uh, the revolution from outside. Uh, I think that will also affect uh, Cuban uh, government decision to uh, make a move to toward the communist bloc at this point. We're kind of also curious, what has been Cuba's relationship to other Caribbean countries since 1959, and in what ways will the change in the U.S. embargo affect the relations of Cuba to other islands and to other countries in the Americas and the world? And so, Jaime, we can ask you to, to begin here. Since 1960, Castro has been a lot, an ally, first of the Soviet Union, and sometimes with China, and at sometimes with Middle Eastern countries like Iran. Right now, Cuba is a close ally of Venezuela, which is providing Cuba 100,000 barrels of petroleum at payment. So Cuba is an ally of Venezuela, is an ally of China, an ally of Russia, and an ally of Iran. These are the four countries that provide Cuba help 
aid with no conditions. So uh, it's a good relationship for General Raul Castro because he received all this aid without preconditions. They don't ask for new for internet in Cuba. They don't ask for freedom of the press. They don't ask for human rights. They just provide credit to an ally and aid to an ally. Relationship with the Caribbean has not been important for the Castro regime. Venezuela is a key ally and one that has come to replace the Soviet Union as a supporter, as an ally, as a provider of money and credit. Some of the petroleum that Venezuela is providing Cuba is being resold in the world, uh, world market. So Cuba received money for reselling Venezuelan petroleum. The United States is coming to this game asking Cuba for concessions, for change, for human rights. And what if the other guests want to weigh in here as well? Um, yeah, I think um, I think that um, Professor raises some important points. Um, one of the things to keep in mind, however, when we th- think about international relations and and um, you know global diplomacy uh, uh, from the perspective of the United States, uh, there are many other countries around the world that also uh, commit um, you know very serious human rights violations against their own citizens, against their populations, and um, some of whom do so very flagrantly, and with whom we still have um, very good relations. So I think that um, the issue of human rights uh, in Cuba is something that we should be concerned about. But um, I don't know that our um, uh, the question of the embargo necessarily pivots on that particular issue. I think the U.S. embargo issue is also relevant uh, to U.S. relations with other countries, I mean, such as, you know, Japan or Canada or Mexico and these countries. Uh, almost all U.S. major allies did not like what the United States was doing, has been doing in Cuba. It, it basically did not work unless, you know, the United States have uh, other countries uh, joining this uh, how can I say, a uh, policy framework, uh, because the embargo is, you know, basically economic isolation. And if the United States is the only, only, only one country that uh, kept doing this uh, forever, uh, basically, you know, Cuba could get away with this, I mean, without making any uh, anything uh, meaningful. So I think that is one consideration Obama was, I mean, taking off um, right now. And I'm not even sure uh, Obama administration was thinking uh, Cuban policy in terms of whether or not Cuba make an internal change. Uh, I think the State Union addressed yesterday basically mentioned that it could be, it could stand up for democratic values or whatever, but it, he also mentioned that it was basically uh, try, um, the measure was taken to remove the uh, mis- legacy of mistrust. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere, because so many Latin American countries basically look to U.S. policy toward Cuba as a kind of offense of the exercise of national sovereignty. Uh, so it is p- quite unpopular. Uh, so that may be one, one thing that the US, U.S. government was thinking right now. And so uh, moving on to our last uh, final kind of takeaway question, what does the past tell us about the future in this case? That is, can we use past relations either before or after the Castros as a means to understand what the future of U.S.-Cuban relations will look like? And Lily, if you please take us uh, away on this one. Sure. I think, um, you know, President Obama made a very good point last night in a State of Union address when he said, you know, We've been pursuing a policy for over 50 years, and um, if, if it's not working, then you know it's time to revisit that and, and think about other options. I think that's a, a you know really good point uh, that he makes there. 
And I think that, you know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind going forward is the larger context of U.S.-Latin American relations, uh, you know, our um, interventions throughout the region uh, over the course of the 20th century, um, our economic policies in different uh, countries, our relations with other milita- military dictatorships in the region as well. And, um, you know, as historians, of course, we all believe that there's a lot to learn from the past in terms of guiding you know, our future. Actions. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to answer this question since U.S.-Cuban relation has been almost unpredictable, uh, right? I mean, when Eisenhower cut the relation with uh, Cuba, he didn't expect that this con- you know, situation would continue for over 50 years. Um, but, I mean, because, you know, the continuation of hostilities uh, for so many years, we have so many issues to talk about. I mean, Guantanamo mm, could okay. be one issue. Um, Maybe uh, U.S. embargo or brocade or political opening in Cuba, whatever. Um, I think also migration could be important uh, because, you know, for Obama, migration issue is very important political issue. And Cuba, uh, you know, Cubans have been only national group of nationality that could have special access to U.S. residency and also U.S. citizenship. So that has to be a lot of, I mean, that has a lot of, uh, to do with uh, the future of Cuban American community, so uh, I think you know uh, this uh, may be very important things to see. All right, the one lesson I think we can learn about the history of U.S.-Cuban relations is that it is not the United States who should dictate policy in Cuba, and it is not the United States and a Cuban government that should decide the future of Cuba. The future of Cuba has to be decided by the Cubans and the island. And they were not consulted when the president made his statement. The president ignored Cubans, went ahead and, and made a deal with a, a dictatorship. So it's repeating the things that the American government has done in the past. We need to get the Cubans on the table. We need to force the Cuban government or at least encourage the Cuban government to sit down with the leadership of the Cuban people, the opposition, to discuss the future of Cuba. Great. Well, Willia Fernandez is the author of Brown in the Windy City and a history professor at Ohio State. Hideaki Kami is a PhD candidate at OSU writing a dissertation on U.S.-Cuban relations. And Jaime Suchliki is a professor of history at the University of Miami and author of Cuba from Columbus to Castro. We'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Leticia Wiggins. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.